0: hello jason hi doc how are you very good very good okay (laughs) yeah yeah i guess uh phones work better than laptops (laughs) apparently (laughs) anyways uh so let me do a few introductions uh for anyone who's listening i'm doc jones the resource investor uh, this is not investment advice. I am not a paid newsletter writer. Nobody pays me for what I do. I basically just interview the companies where I put my, mo- my own capital into that I think have uh, potential to, uh, to appreciate and provide action gains for, for the investors. Um, you should treat this podcast as an educational event, not as investment advice. Um, you know, Do your own due diligence etc. Now, uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce everyone to Jason Jessup, the CEO of Magna Mining. Uh, Jason, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, Magna, how it was formed uh, when going from private to public and what your mission was with forming this company when you did. Sure, Doc. So back
1: in, uh, well, going way back. So I worked with a, a company um, in Sudbury here called FNX Mining, um, which was a you know an exceptionally successful company from about uh, 2000 to two, 2010 um, when they ended up doing a, uh, a merger with with Quadra to become Quadra FNX, and then eventually were acquired by KGHM for about 1.8 billion. And you know, and by 2015, I had recognized that. You know there was a great opportunity in Sudbury again to kind of recreate that entrepreneurial spirit that uh, really differentiated F and X from the major companies such as Valet and Glencore here in Sudbury. Um, previously it was Inco and Falconbridge. So in 2016, uh, I co-founded Magna Mining to be a a new Sudbury-focused junior company to acquire non-core assets in the basin, assets that didn't make sense to the majors. Uh, but had you know exploration potential and, and resources and could uh, what I believe could be a, um, successfully mined and at a profit here in Sudbury. So that was really you know the inspiration behind Magna, and we formed the company in, in 2016, 2017 um, when nickel prices were about four dollars a pound. Uh, we started with our strategy and acquired the Shakespeare Project here in Sudbury, which you know, we thought it was a perfect fit for that first stepping stone into the basin because Shakespeare, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, and why, 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 why did you think it was a perfect fit? What are the attributes of the Shakespeare project?
1: So, you know, in, in kind of reflecting on my experience here in Sudbury uh, with FNX mining and, and just to recap a little bit about FNX, FNX purchased five uh, past producing Inco mines. Um, and then through good exploration, you know, creative mining, and I was on the mining side of the team, um, and and obviously taking advantage of a, a great nickel market, we were able to bring three of those mines into commercial production, made four significant discoveries. And, you know, that's eventually why the company was acquired. Um, so one of the things that FNX didn't have was their own mill, or even the permits or ability to build their own mill. So FNX was completely reliant on a toll milling strategy, which worked very well. Um, so what we noticed initially thought about Shakespeare was, you know, it it provides a few things. It is a significant resource. Um, it's technically de risk because it wasn't past production, okay. but it has those major permits, including an approved closure plan to construct a 4,500 ton per day, open pit mine mill and tailing storage facility. And, and those of you, you know, understand how permitting works these days. Um, you know, that is not an easy feat to get permitted. That takes years and, and a lot of work. So, having this to start, we thought, wow, what a great cornerstone asset to build our strategy, um, you know, and recreate what we think could be the FNX 2.0. So, that was back in 2017. As, and we were a private company then. Um, you know, we didn't have, you know, with the low nickel prices at the time. Nobody was getting overly excited, but we saw this as the opportunity to build a solid base for, for what we right. saw as you know, a future producer here in Sudbury.
0: Right, and, and the thing uh, um, about the, the, the mill, the permitted mill, mill it's, it's uh, permitted for uh, 4,500 tons a day, but it also has the ability to expand by 50%, if I'm correct, to uh, 6,750 tons a day without triggering a, a federal EA, uh, a new environmental assessment which in itself, not having to do a new environmental assessment to expand 50% knocks off a few years on the timeline to expand that, that mill should you decide to do that, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the current threshold right now is, is for new metal mines. Um, if they are more than 5,000 tons a day, um, they do require a federal environmental assessment, which is a, you know, it's a fairly lengthy process to get that completed. Um, Shakespeare being under 4,500 tons a day didn't require that environmental assessment. Um, But there is a clause in there that allows for, once in production, a 50% expansion um, without also triggering that. So presumably we could get up, you know, well over 6,500 tons a day um, without needing that, which is a a real advantage, we think, in looking at our broader strategy and bringing in, you know, multiple deposits um, into a future mill at Shakespeare. And and we think you know really creating a sizable company.
0: Great. Um, for, for people who are not familiar with the uh, Sudbury jurisdiction, what about that makes it so favorable for uh, the endeavor that you're embarking on here to put a few mines into production, potentially build the mill? Uh, what 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 about Sudbury makes it such a, a favorable place to do business uh, from uh, you know an ESG standpoint, community standpoint, as well as a you know cost standpoint?
1: Yeah, I could talk on this subject for an hour, but I'll try I'll to keep it to a couple minutes.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Sudbury is, it is a tier one mining jurisdiction, a tier one nickel mining jurisdiction. Um, you know, the region has been actively mining nickel and copper or and, and PGMs for well over 120 years. Um, it is truly a, an exceptional camp. You know with all of that you know besides the the huge geological and mineral endowment that, that sudbury's has you know it also has tremendous community support so people here in sudbury they understand mining um, it, it's in our it's in our roots and you know this includes our first nations um, in the region And we do have an impact-benefit agreement with the Sagamok First Nations on our Shakespeare project. um, And we consider them excellent supportive partners. Um, You know, they're very pro-mining. And and like the other First Nations in the region, they understand mining, they're supportive of mining. They just wanna be a part of it, which is is totally understandable. Um, You know, Sudbury is located right on the Trans-Canada Highway here in Canada. It is, you know, has, Two smelters um, in the region, which is fantastic. It has uh, two large mills, one owned by Glencore, one owned by Valley. So the opportunity to to start production through toll milling is great, and there is capacity in both those mills. Mm-hmm. It has two uh, colleges here to provide you know the, the trades and the technical skills that are needed to you know, both to, to make discoveries, build mines and, and then operate them successfully, as well as Laurentian University, which has an excellent engineering and geology program. Um, Sudbury is also, you know, a major hub for uh, mining suppliers and, and service providers globally. So there's so much going for Sudbury when you look at a mining um, jurisdiction. And, you know, we believe that we can grow into a, a multi-billion dollar company um, just being focused right here on Sudbury
0: well yeah (laughs) well I I would like that very much uh that would be fantastic um uh so so you 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 have the Shakespeare you started with that permitted mill tailings closure and and a feasibility study the feasibility study I think uh uh, something important about that is is that you had to conform that feasibility study to the previous mill and closure program so um, as far as the optimization of of, of that feasibility study, and it really hasn't been done yet because it only contemplates a, uh, a small percentage of of, of the whole. Um, so, uh, any any comments on that?
1: Yeah. So the the Shakespeare Project um, it has an interesting background story as well. It was a former Falconbridge property. Um, a junior company called Ursa Major optioned it back in, in 2000 and 2002, they made a discovery of the east, the east zone, which is the the largest portion of the deposit, um, you know, between 2003, 2005, drilled that out. And then with rising nickel prices decided to, to complete the technical work and, and permitting, um, as well as a feasibility study. So that was all done. And that's what our closure plan and our, our major permits were based upon. But because they decided to move forward very quickly into the feasibility study, um, you know, within three or four years after discovery, uh, yeah. there wasn't I would say a uh, a complete exploration program done, and the idea was get it into production when nickel prices are high, and then use that cash flow to continue on expanding the resources, which seems to make a lot of sense. And at the time, I, I'm sure that as a junior company, that was a great approach. Um, you know, we took a look at things a little bit differently, and when we acquired it, and recognized there was we believed a lot of exploration potential around it. Um, When we did the feasibility study, which was announced in January of 2022, um, we made a strategic decision though, to not uh, expand on what was originally permitted so that we would be in a position to move into construction um, without requiring any material amendments to our our closure plan or permits. Um, that being said, in 2021 and, and 2022, we've completed, you know, approximately 10,000 meters of drilling in and around Shakespeare. Um, much of that uh, has been press released and we had very good success in um, drilling what we believe are extensions to the resource and connecting up between the what we believe in future resource updates will be a connection between the west zone, the east zone, filling in a lot of the gap zone. All of this means that in future resource updates, we think the, the open pit resource will get much larger. We think that in future reserve updates, there's potential for the reserves um, to increase. We uh, use 650 nickel and three dollar copper for the reserve calculations, um, which came in uh, you know very conveniently around the, exactly what we're permitted for. Uh, if we were to use larger you know higher higher metal prices. Uh, that may be more reflecting of sort of current uh, forecasts for for nickel and copper. Um, you know, presumably the reserves would be expanded and, and the life of mine would be expanded. So there is you know over 20 million tons of indicated open pit resource currently. Um, yeah. You know, our reserves are 11 point uh, about 11.8 million tons. So we think that you know Shakespeare has a lot of upside, and, and one of the exciting things with the drilling we announced back in October that. Um, you know, we had the highest grade precious metal and, um, and and some good grade copper that we've ever intersected in a narrow intersection in the footwall of the west zone. Um, and, and some very interesting things happened there geologically. But we had an intersection that was, you know, 0.9% copper um, with, you know, depleted nickel. So nickel was around 0.2%. Um, which is a very different ratio than we're used to, but with uh, 18 grams of platinum, palladium, gold, which is much, much higher than anything we've ever intersected. So something interesting is happening in the geology. Um, We will be following up on that next year. But Shakespeare, I think, uh, you know, in future feasibility study updates or future reserve calculations, I think there's tremendous upside.
0: Good, good, yeah. And and Shakespeare is is not really the main event anymore because (laughs) – You've had this transformative acquisition recently uh, of the Crane Hill mine, the Denison uh, property, which is uh, what brought me into the story. And for those listening, um, I, I, am, I am a large shareholder. I, I, I have a, a pretty decent economic interest in this company, and it's based on this acquisition they did because it changes everything and it changed everything for me I, jason I, uh, you, you and i talked i think almost two years ago for the first time and uh magna was was on my watchness watch list and i had a uh, foothold little position there that i never disclosed to anyone i had because i was waiting for to see what you guys would do because i've been tracking you for three years you know where you formed the company you said this is what you're going to do and then you started doing exactly what you said you were going to do and then the transformative acquisition came through, and I think really shocked the market with the uh, amount of resources there. Uh, there was speculation that uh, Crane Hill would be maybe three three million tons at two three percent nickel equivalent, and what you did come in with was, I'll leave it to you. Jason.
1: Yeah, so the resource that we announced uh, shortly after closing the acquisition in November um, comes in at over thirty one million tons of combined open pit and underground indicated resource and at, at quite good grades. So it's about 16.8 million tons of open pit at about 1.08 uh, nickel equivalent. Um, and then another 14.5 million tons of indicated resource in the underground at uh, it's a little over 2% nickel equivalent. So it's a substantial resource. It's a substantial resource compared to any of the resources that Valley or Glencore or, or KGHM have in Sudbury, so we, uh, you know, we're extremely excited. This is a, a very much a transformation, transformative uh, acquisition for us, and you know, we think it's just the beginning. Um, much like the other properties, many of the other properties that FNX X acquired, um, you know, Crane Hills produced over 20 million tons historically um, when Inco was operating it. It shut down, but um, the focus of major companies in Sudbury, like Inco, back in the day, um, was much different than what it is now. It was very much uh, mine out the the heart, the best material, the you know zones that are you know high grade, thirty meters wide, cookie cutter. You can go in and, and be very productive, um, and because they had so much reserves they had, you know, back in, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, you know, they had upwards of 100 million tons of reserves. Um, they could be very selective on what they mined and, and where they were focused on. So as we proved at FNX, a lot of times um, significant portions of deposits can get missed. Um, mm-hmm. Things aren't followed up on and, and specifically footwall deposits were not tested at all. Um, that's a fairly recent um, interest to the major companies in Sudbury, probably only over the last 20, 25 years. So, you know, it is a a spectacular um, project. It fits very well with our plans. And as you said, it's exactly in line with what we said we were going to do. Um, and, you know, we uh, we're following through with it.
0: Yeah. So um, <coughs> just for maybe people who are, are not uh... As up to date or or knowledgeable of the difference between the Sudbury contact and the footwall, so uh, Sudbury contact deposits uh, mainly a nickel dominant, right? Uh, generally across uh, Sudbury, the ratio of nickel to copper is generally one to one. It's just it's mobilized and deposited in different areas because of how precip- pre- precipitates out depending on temperature. Nickel uh, precipitates out at higher temperature, and then the PGMs and copper at a lower temperature. So what you've what's been proven empirically in Sudbury is you get these nice high-grade nickel contact deposits, and then somewhere in the footwall, either down dip or further away from the contact, as the temperatures cool, the uh, the copper and the PGMs are deposited. Uh, and what was interesting, I found in, in when you put out your first assay there of uh, drilling in the in the footwall, uh, where you had like I think it was six percent nickel and 2% copper over eight meters, something like that. like that. But what was important to me in that is that the temperature must still be high where you were drilling, which means that the copper and the PGMs were still being mobilized somewhere else. Some of it was pre- uh, precipitating out, but a lot of it hadn't yet. And that's what you saw with the Morrison deposit a, at uh, Lavac, right? Um, do you
1: wanna? Uh, yeah, so I, I think that's a good sort of analogy to the potential. Uh, still at Crane Hill. So one of the properties that FNX acquired from Inco was the Lavac mine. in Lavac, well, there's a town named after it. It was a significant producer for about 100 years for Inco, um, produced over 50 million tonnes of ore from underground, um, some very high-grade ore, um, from many different deposits within that property. And, you know, it closed down around 1998, 99, um, and then FNX acquired it shortly after. And then Gordon Morrison was uh, the VP of, of exploration for FNX. And he, uh, you know, was previously the brownfield exploration manager for, for INCO. So he was one of the first pioneers to recognize the potential of these footwall deposits, probably back in the late 1980s, um, even though it was not of great interest to, to INCO at the time. And he saw at Lavac Mine the right ingredients for a footwall deposit. Sudbury breccia, which is the rock unit you need in the footwall of the contact deposits that allow the fluids to to move out into the footwall and allows these copper rich, PGM rich deposits um, to form. Um, and he saw, again, a, a change in the the uh, percentage of, of nickel and copper in some of these deposits. So that copper had to go somewhere. So, you know, even though there has been Lavac mine had been mined and I, I forget the exact number of meters, but it was in the you know hundreds of thousands of, of meters. Um, I think it may have been closer to hundreds of thousands of kilometers of drilling historically at Lavac mine. Um, you'd wonder how there could be anything else left there, and sure enough, you know, we tested Gord's theories at FNX at Lavac Mine, and and discovered the Lavac Footwall deposit, which was later named the uh, the Morrison deposit. It became you know a flagship for FNX in two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, and then I was you know I led the team and brought that into production in two thousand and nine and ten, and. Um, you know it was a fantastic story we mined that deposit these these calcopyrite copper rich vein um, we mined that at you know for the first year ten percent copper one and a half percent nickel and 10 grams of platinum palladium, gold um, pretty much for the first year and and they continued to mine after I left uh, after the the merger with Quadra so it it you know, these are the type of fantastic football deposits you can find, but what's amazing is even in a, a well-established mine that's been, you know, drilled and mined for, for many decades, these opportunities still exist in Sudbury. And the Crane Hill mine, which we acquired, it is, you know, has so many similarities to the Levack mine, the McCready West mine, the Podolsky mine, the Kirkwood, all these mines are, are contact deposits FNX acquired where footwall discoveries were made by FNX. Crane Hill has never had, I would say proper exploration for footwall deposits. Mm. And, and we think, and, and Gord Morrison would say, you know, there's, it's not a question of whether or not there's a footwall deposit. It's, it's, you know where is it? It's just finding it.
0: Yeah, and for people who are listening, Gord Morrison is a member of the company now, as well as Dave King, the two uh, major geologists that, uh, with MNX that that discovered three of these footwall deposits. I believe out of the five mines that were acquired there. Uh, and uh, when I was at the site visit, uh, I spoke with uh, with with uh, Gord, and just uh, this, this is a little little segue, but. Uh, I remember him saying too that when assimilating the data for the uh, 43101 compliant resource on Crane Hill, that there was a lot of indications that the uh, the previous uh, drilling they they they, they, they underassayed for uh, the PGMs. Uh, because back during between the 1900s and up to 2000, mine managers were paid by the pound of nickel. So when they hit an intersection that was indicative of something in the footwall, which is low nickel, high copper and PGMs, often they didn't bother assaying for the PGMs because the nickel grade wasn't high enough. And so the mine manager isn't going to get paid to mine that section. So there was a number of sections uh, historically that lacked those assays. Um, so that there is the potential for upgrading the value of the resource just within the current resource shell by doing homogeneous, you know, uh, assays for all underlying commodities across the board.
1: Yeah, that's a, you know, that's, that's correct. And, you know, there's probably a few reasons why they didn't assay and, but it really wasn't, it comes down it just wasn't an interest. It wasn't a priority. Inco was originally, you know, the international nickel company. They were a nickel company, first and foremost. Um, copper, you know, came along with it, but precious metals were often something that uh, were not even considered in any of the, the production decisions. So it, it is an opportunity that we see. And in, in, again, in our experience with FNX, um, it can be a tremendous opportunity. Um, and we're seeing that already. and. The Crane Hill mine was, uh, we acquired a company called Lawnman Canada and and Lawnman Canada was the operator Had a joint venture with Inco, but only for low sulphide PGM styles of mineralization. That was their focus. So these, what we're talking about, these these copper rich uh, footwall deposits that have high PGMs, that wouldn't even have been within their scope of what they were exploring for, um, because the agreement they had with, with INCO and Vale only allowed them to explore um, and and retain, you know, discovery rights of, of low sulfide PGMs. So when I say low sulfide, I'm talking about low copper nickel values, something in the range of, you know, maybe a maximum of a 0.4 nickel, 0.4 copper. Um, and, you know, Lonmin was quite successful in delineating uh, two zones like this, the 9,400-foot the wall zone and the 109-foot wall zone. Um, both these areas had some exceptional low-sulfide, high-PGM styles of mineralization where they had, you know, tens of meters at uh, double-digit precious metals with minimal amounts of, of copper and nickel in them. Um, so. Yeah. That does show that there is, and these are hosted within Sudbury brecches, the right kind of rock that we would be looking for. But much as like how you said earlier, Doc, um, these are right at the contact. So they are immediately in the foot wall from the contact. And while these deposits were forming, there would have been a tremendous amount of heat. Things were liquid. Um, yeah. At that time, some of the precious metals would partici- or precipitate out as they moved, these fluids moved further into the foot wall. Primarily, the copper would continue to remobilize deeper into the footwall until it found the right temperature, the right geochemistry, and the right environment where it could uh, start to to form and accumulate. And that's where you get these really high grade deposits. So typically you're not gonna find that within 100 meters or even 200 meters of the contact. Typically they're they're more than 200 meters out to maybe as much as 500 meters into the foot wall. But like you you need that that right temperature so that those metals can start to, to accumulate. But we have the corridors identified in the 109 in um, the 9,400, and, and we believe potentially in this 101 zone that we released the, the high-grade nickel assays yeah. from, from hole number three. That's within another zone called the 101. It is uh, hosted in Sudbury Breccia, but what we, we've identified um, primarily is very high-grade nickel right at the contact. Um, but this zone has not been drilled. It was really not a focus of Lonman because it is massive sulfides, um, right. And it hasn't been well understood or explored. So we see a lot of opportunity to follow up on this and, and try to figure out, okay, well, we got high grade nickel with, you know, very much depleted copper. Where did all that copper go? So we can follow, you know, presumably we'll, we'll attempt to follow that zone out and then and using geophysics and, and good geology and structural geology, we'll, uh, you know, try to target where we think those massive copper deposits could be.
0: Yeah, that, 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 that's what I love so much about this story, is especially how misunderstood uh, the JV was uh, by your general gen, general public that uh, Walbridge and uh, Sibanie, uh, you know, which Lonman, uh they didn't have the rights to any of the massive sulfide or the high sulfide. So when they were drilling, when they hit that stuff, uh, I'm sure they logged it, but it didn't go into their resource estimate because they didn't own it. They couldn't put it in a resource estimate. So that's where the disconnect came of. Of That people thought maybe this would only be 3 million tons. Turns out it's 31 million tons because that 90,000 meters of drilling that they did that wasn't included in the resource, a lot of that ISIS tech was hitting uh, uh, mineralization that they didn't have the legal rights to because Valet retained it. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. So um, And also, I'd, I'd like to look at the synergies that, that are potential here, because you have uh, Shakespeare, which has a permitted mill, and then you have this project, which, which is within trucking distance, which is at a much higher grade. So even staying within the the plan of operations you have there, it, uh, do you foresee a potential to blend the ore, to high-grade it, uh, to truck it there? Um
1: Absolutely. That's, you know, our vision for the company is really to create a, a hub and spoke production model. So Shakespeare being that hub, that centralized mill, and then having you know, multiple sources of feed. And, and we, you know, envision having more than just Crane Hill, having multiple sources of feed, feeding into it and and blending it and mining it at what makes the most economic sense. Now, there's a couple of ways to get there. We have to build a mill at Shakespeare. We have to, um, you know, spend the capital costs to do that. And you know we think that uh, based on the resource we have right now, and, and we're working on a, a preliminary economic assessment on Crane Hill to try and demonstrate the economics of this 31 million ton resource and what a mine plan could look like, as yeah. well as synergies with Shakespeare. But you know one of the approaches that we may take, which which we think is great, is to uh, you know, potentially start early production through toll milling, much like what FNX did, in order to you know. De-risk the project and also generate cash flow um, to help with the construction of Shakespeare, and, and while we're constructing it. So that is something that our team is very familiar with. Uh, I personally led you know a number of mining operations for F and X, um, so very comfortable going into these these old Inco mines um, and and building very solid mine plans, and and using you know. Sometimes multiple mining methods that make sense, but being able to really maximize the the profits from these deposits. Um, so that's something we're going to be evaluating with this PEA, and you know it is something that we believe um, could be a a very quick, low capex um, cash flow situation.
0: So what, what what type of capacity is available in Sudbury as far as for mills? Like uh, I know that there is uh, a few of them that are are, are short feed, but um, how many tons a day are do you think is available to you uh, should you go that route?
1: Well it's you know and these things always change um, you know right. from, from quarter to quarter year to year but in generally speaking you know we believe there's somewhere between you know five and seven thousand tons of capacity available between the two mills and um, okay. especially over the short term, I think that's a, a reasonable number so, Probably more than we can provide, <laughs> um, but lots of capacity. And, and you know, we're we have regular discussions with uh, you know both both Valley and Glencore in Sudbury, and we like to keep them abreast of what we're doing and and see what right. we can work on. And, and both uh, companies, we feel are you know good uh, good colleagues to have here in Sudbury. We we seem like we want to work together, and and we see the benefits. And you know, having additional feed uh, going into their mills, they see as a benefit. So. Um, there's definitely an opportunity there to work together in the future.
0: Okay, um, and, and that would be a, a tool milling situation. Would It would be, I, I imagine the high-grade underground. So you'd probably be shipping around, you know, 2% that equivalent to, uh, you know. Around yeah, and that'll be determined with the
1: PEA. Um, because there is a significant resource on surface, um, you know, there could be potential for a, a pretty low capex quick startup of a, um, you know, a starter pit on surface. We okay. think that there's, you know, tremendous opportunity and advantages of getting underground and, uh-huh. and doing some underground mining through a, uh, a ramp access. So again, low cost, um, potentially very shallow uh, mining where you can mine very productively, um, just trucking ore to surface, uh, crushing it, loading it in a truck and, and sending it off to a mill. So there's, there's a couple scenarios and we've engaged Stantec Consulting to complete this mm-hmm. PEA. The so Stantec is a very well-known uh, mining consulting firm, uh, does work internationally and, and does, does have uh, an office here in Sudbury. So we've been working closely with them for a number of months now and they'll be mm-hmm. completing that. So we'll get more colour on it. Um, okay. You know, I think that uh, and, and this is definitely forward looking and just based on my experience, yeah. but judging by what we have in the uh, in our initial drilling, um, what we've released in our first assay result and in and our experience from FNX, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's definitely potential to mine much higher grade than what our average resource grade is. And I'm not talking about just high grading and picking the eyes out of things, but just by being more selective. One of the things we did really well at FNX and I'm quite proud of is we built a workforce that uh, mined selectively, did not take more dilution. Um, So the waste rock around the the ore, around the mineralization, did not take more than what was necessary. Um, And what that does is when you're paying per tonne, at a mill to get every ton processed and you're paying by the ton to truck it to the mill um, and you're paying, you know, your, your trucks are hauling every ton to surface, the more waste you leave underground and the the, the more mineralization you bring up, you know, the more profitable you're gonna be. So yeah. we were very, very good at that and looking at the types of mineralization and, and what we have uh, in the resource currently, um, there's definitely potential to, to do much better than what our, our resource grade is. now you know, the trade-off is you, you mine more selectively, there's less tons overall, but but better grades, and, and more often than not, that results in more profit. But again, these are things we'll work on. Um, and everything is, you know, still up in the air as far as what that'll look like. But I do believe that there's definitely a very
0: good potential for that. Okay. Uh, my my own, I guess you can call it internal models of mine. Uh, I'm not going to throw numbers out out here as far as what I think the cash flow will be, but I'm thinking a scenario where you could comfortably um, toll you know, 2,500 tons a day, 3,000 tons a day. Do you think that's a reasonable uh, place for me to be modeling this if you went that route?
1: Well, you know, historically, when the mine was in production with Inco, um, oh. its its production rate was 3,400 tons a day um, okay. from the main zone. Um, the, now, the main zone was mined, you know, the bulk of it was mined. There's there's lots of resources left around it, but the bulk of it was mined um, down to the 4,500 foot level or about 1,500 meters. Uh, the 9,400 zone, which is on the Western side, it's only been mined down about 350 meters. And below that is, is unmined, you know, mineralization. And we think it has a lot of, uh, Characteristic similarities, and size potential of the main. So if we were mining in that zone, presumably, you know, there's a good chance you could be mining in those ranges. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I don't think that's far-fetched based on historic production rates, but this is something we're trying to determine with Stantec right now.
0: Okay, oh, that's fair, that's fair. Um, so uh, as is today, uh, the company has um, permitted mills no. Uh, a little over 50 million tons of of, uh, resources of which you have, I think it's 51 million tons in the indicated. Um, The total in situ value of all those tons is about at today's um, spot rate for nickel using 1250 is about 18.4 billion. You have a market cap today of just 111 million in avian. Oh, yeah, that 18.4 is in the US dollars. So that would probably convert into, I don't know, 22 billion Canadian around there. Um, so, as is today, that's what you have. And we've covered the potential upside of the exploration, foot wall discovery. If you did do a tool milling scenario, you're looking at being into cash flow in about a year. Uh, of course, it'd be some capex, probably ranging, I would say, these are my numbers, not yours, between, yeah. I don't know, 30, 35 million to getting the production doing 2500 three thousand a day um, so so that, yeah that's that's what I like about it um, <laughs> uh, but but uh, since I have you here and I think it, it would behoove me not to uh, ask you about your views on the macro because again we're dealing with commodity which is a global commodity myself what has attracted me to nickel is that there's such a shortage of nickel in the world right now. We have, uh, there's only, uh, one producing mine, uh, in, in the United States, which is slated, I believe to close in 2025. That's when they're supposed to run out of war. Uh, we have on the LME, we're now 75% below the five year average of storage there. There's only, uh, 53,000 tons of nickel there. And, and we're combining, uh, class one and class two, uh, as far as the demand for nickel sulfide, which is the type of nickel that, that you have in your resource, that is what's needed to make uh, uh, you know, battery technology and whatnot. Uh, and uh, that has the lowest carbon output uh, compared to uh, NPI, nickel pig iron out of in Indonesia, which carries 4 or 5x the carbon emissions. In a world that we're looking at you know, putting a price on carbon, that's going to probably bifurcate the market between uh, nickel sulfide and NPI uh, adding those additional costs. Um, and just looking at some of the, um, some of, some of the reports that have been out there from Goldman Sachs, for instance, they're looking for a, uh, a, a shortage in the market for the next uh, year or two. And then there's some new production coming online. And then after 2025 new supply falls off the cliff, uh, and they're looking to see uh, uh, nickel prices spike to uh, uh, $42,000 a ton, which would equivalent to $19 a pound. And then stabilizing in 2024 and then kind of ranging between thirty, thirty-two thousand dollars dollars a ton because that would be the incentive price uh, that they believe for the conversion of uh, some of the NPI not taking into account the, the, the cost of carbon and the amount of Of energy that goes into those conversions, Um, uh, as well as there's also, I think anyone who's in the mining sector has seen this graphic of how many mines do we need. And according, uh, I think this is wood, 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 mechanical benchmark uh, metals, they say that we need between now and 2035, uh, I believe it's 72 new nickel mines. Be, to handle the the coming demand from the, you know, the green transition to bring us from the uh, 3.1 million tons of demand today to the 6.2 million tons that is slated for 2035. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, and also nickel has been the best performing uh, metal in the last year. I think it's up about 40% uh, compared to almost everything else with the exception of lithium which is down quite a bit um, over the last year so so what, what is what is your your perspective on the nickel market as far as as uh, uh, where you see supply and demand and if you have an idea on what you think the clearing price will be to incentivize new production I've heard people talk about you know that the the, the floor will be at you know ten dollars pounds and if you have any opinion on the uh Indonesian uh, uh nickel pig iron and um how that potential supply coming into the market how it will be priced or if it will incentivize or deincentivize the um the price
1: yeah it's a uh, that's a really some really good questions and you know, I will never tell people that I am an expert on the nickel market. I, I'm an expert on Sudbury uh, mining. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what I've been seeing is really unique. And um, I I don't know if this is a once in a, a lifetime type situation, but, you know, nickel has become so strategic and so important. Um, you know, we're seeing governments in the U.S. looking to give grants to Canadian mining companies to build mines to supply them with nickel which is you know it's it's so unusual but that's where we're at and you know as you may be aware doc i'm sure you are you know the department of defense is looking to uh to grant to to mining companies like magna um that have you know feasibility stage projects that can supply um you know kind of help supply the domestic uh, supply chain with, with these battery metals um, and and looking to deploy that cash, you know, over the next year. So that is, that's the world we live in right now. Now, what does that mean for the price of nickel? Well, I think that means that just as you said, the supply that's on the LME right now is extremely low. When you're talking, you know, seven or eight days of supply, that's, that's scary low. now with that, we're gonna see volatility in the market and, and we've seen some of that. I think for the, the price of nickel to to swing, you know, one or two dollars in the matter of a day or two is, is not gonna be unusual over the next year or two. That being said, you know, I was asked this about four or five months ago, you know, where do you think sort of the new the new floor is gonna be on nickel price and at that time, I said, you know, I think it'll be around nine bucks. Now, I would say it's probably around ten fifty. I really don't think we're going to see, you know, ten fifty or below ten fifty U.S. nickel price um, for the foreseeable future. There's just it's too much in demand now. Where could it go? I think we could get, you know, some some spikes again that that kind of get out of control, like we saw you know, in March of last year, or this year. Um, And, but really, you know, to incentivize these, the kind of development of of new production, um, well, first of all, there's really not a lot of it, unless we're gonna go to these ultra low grade, you know, massive deposits, which currently none are being mined um, because of, you know, the capex and and recoveries and risk around them. But I think at some price, at some price, those will make sense what that may be it could be twenty dollars a pound u.s um i don't i don't know the exact number but it's going to have to be a lot higher because there's such long-term investments uh so you know going forward i would expect that we're going to see you know very strong nickel prices i think you know next year we're going to kind of get used to 14 15 a pound u.s a pound nickel where we could see you know spikes up to that $18, 19 $20 US a pound. And we could see dips back down to $11. And we could see that, you know, even in the next couple months um, easily. Yeah. It's just, yeah. we're going to see some volatility, but overall, I don't think there will be enough nickel, especially class one nickel. that's you know, what we're producing in Sudbury here. Um, I just don't see much coming on. That's going to, you know, start uh, stockpiling again on the LME. The demand is going to be there. Uh, We're seeing a lot of demand still increasing in stainless steel. Um, Now there is going to be Indonesian supply coming on, no doubt. But that is, as you mentioned, you know, it's very carbon intensive. So when you look at the big automakers, the Volkswagens, the Teslas, you know, those types of big automakers that are going to need a lot of nickel. And they're really going to be, you know, tying their brand to the nickel that they're buying, do they want to tie it to, you know, nickel production that is producing, you know, four to 10 times more carbon per ton of nickel than what we can produce here in Sudbury or, you know, in, in typical sulfide deposits. Mm-hmm. So that's what it really comes down to. I don't believe that, that Indonesia is going to be the, the um, solution to, to our nickel deficit. Um, especially for battery metals and especially in North America and Europe. Now, they have a part to play, absolutely. But I think that, uh, you know, for the next eight to 10 years, uh, the world is, is going to be in deficit of, of class one nickel. And I think that's going to, you know, be reflected in the prices that uh, people are willing to pay.
0: Good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I guess I have to go to the other side of, of this uh... This equation here for a minute, and, and and ask you, what do you see is the greatest risk to uh, to Magna at, at this time? What what would be the greatest risk? Uh... Yeah, that's a good question.
1: Um, you know, that's a really good question. You know, I, I... We have done a good job, I think, of of trying to identify and mitigate risks that we think could be you know fatal flaw type risks. Right. Um, so, you know, the risks we're looking at now are, we think, are very manageable. But, you know, to try and sort of quantify them, um, you know, having the growth of being able to, to grow at the rate we want to grow um, and move things forward as quickly as we want to is going to be reliant on, on people. And it's going to be reliant on, you know, some capital in the capital markets, which is always a risk for non-cash-flowing juniors. Um, I think that we've done a good job and, and, and part of this is, you know, just talking to people, telling our story. And and so that's, you know, already had a, a positive reflection in our share price. And I yeah. think that, you know, we're going to continue to do that. Um, we've done a, a good job, I think, promoting our company and what we're doing in the community. So we're seeing already um, interest in, in people wanting to join our company and we are hiring and we're going to continue to hire and if we do decide to go into, uh, you know, some form of production, whether it's through toll milling or even just a advanced exploration bulk sample, um, you know, I believe we'll have, we'll be able to find the right people. And we're not just talking about filling seats. We want, much like FNX, we want to find, you know, the best people out there to do the jobs that we need them to do. So, you know, but that still is a risk, right? We don't have those people yet. And so we need to attract them and retain them. And in a booming market, you know that that's always challenging. Uh,
0: See some wage inflation, I guess, as everyone's uh, trying to snag the the geologists or the uh, um, whoever whoever they need to fill out their ranks um, in the C-suite. Or um, it's funny because I I I know so much about the company. uh, uh, I I guess uh, I take for granted. So um so currently what it, what is the new flow that you have planned for for 2023 and if you could also touch on where you stand treasury wise and uh what the current treasury treasury will uh pay for as far as the new flow coming because you are a junior that doesn't generate cash flow so at some point you're going to have to raise money that's a given for any junior yeah but between now and then there's going to be potential Re rates either positively, positively or negatively depends on the news mm-hmm. uh, that, that 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 will uh, determine uh, the type of raise that you do.
1: Yeah, so we, uh, you know, as far as news flow and what's coming up, so we've completed our 2,000 meters of drilling um, for this year at Crane Hill, uh, and we've released one hole so far. So there's nine holes to come. Uh, you know, we're we're excited to get those results back. Um, you know, we think that those holes were primarily drilled for um, use in the PEA for some of the technical information we needed, but they also, you know, just based on hole three, um, it's giving us a much better insight into, you know, what is happening, especially in some of these footwall zones. So that's, that's gonna be big and that should be, you know, we're hoping to have more results back early January and then, you know, into early February. Um, we will be starting a 15,000 meter drill program first week of January. And, you know, that will be focusing on really exploration and resource expansion. So that's okay. not in real drilling. Um, and we have some good targets that we're looking at following up on, um, okay. you know, and depending on success, you know, there's potential to bring in a second drill, but we're going to start with one drill. So those okay. results from those new holes, you know, we're hoping to have out by call it the end of February. Um, okay. Stantec's working on the PEA, and and we are, you know, working quite uh, rapidly with them to to get all the information together so that we can get that completed, and we're hoping to have that completed in April of uh, of 2023. And and I think it's going to be important because it's really going to be the first time to demonstrate have a, a third party demonstrate the you know the potential economics of of Crane Hill and what that 31 million tons that as you said, you know, a very significant in situ value of metal, what does that really mean in a mine plan? And, and what could that mean, in, you know, future cash flows? So that's going to be, I think, really exciting. And, and we're hoping to have that out in April. Um, so, you know, between the drilling we're doing, uh, the results we're waiting on and that PEA, I think, you know, the first half of the year is going to be pretty exciting. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, as far as cash in the bank, so we closed that twenty million dollar private placement back in, in November, and thirteen million of that was for the the purchase of uh, of lawnmen, Canada. The other seven million, minus the fees and closing costs, um, went into our treasury. So we're sitting, you know, pretty well right now um, with cash. Um, enough for our our 15,000 meter drill program. We have budget last year, plus our GNA. That being said, there are some, you know, some opportunities depending on, you know, how the markets are and and where the appetite is. At some point uh, next year, we will look at uh, some, some flow through funding, um, especially charity flow, which can have a very nice premium for us and allow us to stretch our dollars a lot further. So that's something we'll look at, you know, in the first half of the year. But, uh, you know, there's no rush when, when the timing's right. And I think once we have, you know, sort of realize the value in the company.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what's close with the, the uh, critical metals tax credit that is applied to that, you can raise that. I think it's a 65% premium to, to the closing, uh, whatever the, 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 the 10, uh, 20 day, uh, Yeah. There's closing. some great. Stuff. Yeah. So, so that's good. That's good. Okay. So we've covered all that. Um, I think that's pretty much everything that I wanted to touch on. Um, yeah. And there's also the uh, recent um, uh, Canadian government offering, um, you know, as well as the U S government grants and, 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 uh, special tax provisions to support, uh, critical metals mining. So that should be interesting, uh, considering you are only one of two feasibility level, um, Nickel project in, in North America, uh, so yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. And and we we didn't bring it up. What what is the what was the capex on uh, bringing in, in the feasibility study to bring uh, uh, that uh, 4,500 ton a day mill into production in the mine? What was the? Yeah. I know the I know I know there's going to be some some sl- leakage here and in cost inflation, but just general because yeah. you know look at other companies they're talking like a billion five in capex to to get into production. So what, what was your capex there?
1: Yeah, so the Shakespeare um, feasibility study that, that we announced in January of 2022, it estimated 233 million Canadian, and that's with the contingency. And, you know, the reason it is a, a reasonable capex for a new 4,500 ton per day, you know, mine, mill and, and tailing storage facility is because, you know, it does have the benefits of being... You know, in Sudbury, has road access, nearby power. You don't have to build a camp. Um, it's got all those benefits. So most of that is is for the plant and the tailing storage facility, a bit of pre-strip on the pit. But yeah, it's a it's a manageable um, capex for a junior company, and it's by far the the lowest um, capital cost estimate for any new nickel project
0: that I've seen. Great, great. Uh, is is there anything that that I didn't cover or? or that You wanted to to uh, impart upon shareholders or potential shareholders. Well, I you know one thing I
1: just want to bring up, and you know for those who've uh, listened to my presentations before, my interviews, and um, and to those who are new, you know back in 2017 um, when we formed the company, we had the same vision that we have today. We wanted to become. A, a multi mine producer here in Sudbury using Shakespeare as that that hub, and then acquiring other non core assets that that are undervalued and, and, and non core to their owners, and you know we've done that now we we've demonstrated we can execute on that plan. Uh, we're not done yet. We're not done growing. Um, we're not ready to to say yes we have everything we want in Sudbury and and we uh, you know we have other targets we have other um, things we're working on, we think we can grow substantially larger. Now it's nothing I'm saying that we're going to do immediately, but over the next couple of years, we do plan on growing. And and we want to be more than just Shakespeare and Crane Hill. Um, we think we can grow other deposits, bring other pot deposits into production and and make other discoveries so we uh we've proven that we can execute on our strategy um we do have big plans and and i've said this before uh, i'm not selling one share um before we're a billion dollar company mm-hmm. and and i'm a big shareholder i am definitely very much overweighted in magna stock and i <laughs> i have been for a long time yeah um, and it's going to stay that way because I, I truly believe in what we're doing and and this is uh, i live and breathe this every
0: day that's fantastic. Actually, I, um, I'd asked one of the, uh, there's, there's a colleague of mine that is a shareholder like myself. And I asked him if he had any questions and I just got an email from him. So I'm, I'm just going to ask the question. It's nothing inflammatory. Uh, given that there are so few projects in Nikolai assume he's saying, I would love to get a sense of exactly how much energy they're putting forward and getting to getting access to this government money, uh, for a uh, feasibility study, do they have a realistic chance of being the first out of the gate on securing this kind of funding? I would also love to know, uh, know anything about the car manufacturers, the EOMs. Uh, I would expect given their concerns of supply that they would be banging on the d- door uh, obviously, the company will be cagey about such questions because, you know, for, uh, disclosures and all that. <laughs> but you also have that uh, MOU with uh, Mitsui. But anyways, uh, as far as uh, uh, sh- sh- should, should we as shareholders expect that you are pursuing those avenues with the United States grant and with the Canadian government as they are open to you that you will... Um, Yeah, so we have had uh, excellent
1: dialogue with uh, both Canadian and U.S. government. And um, Paul Fowler, who's on the call, I believe, and listening in, he's our our senior vice president. Paul, uh, one of his priorities this month is is working with a um, a lobbyist and consultant that we've engaged to help us uh, make those applications for the the U.S. uh, Department of Defense grants. So, you know, at this point I can't speculate on, right. you know, whether we'll be accepted or not, but uh, you know, we think that we have a, a better than a average shot of, of being accepted and time will tell, but we are, you know, very much looking at this as a, a great opportunity um, to reduce the capex and, and have some of that covered through these grants um, as well as with the Canadian grants and you know the programs that they have. So we are, you know, in discussion with both governments and we think, uh, you think like say it, it's sort of a, a once in a generation type opportunity when you see governments this interested in securing supply chain.
0: Okay, great. So, uh, for anyone who's listening, he's not saying it's a guarantee. So, I would, and when you're doing your assessment of this as an investment, take that out of the equation. If that happens fantastic. We get a hundred million dollars from the yeah. government, and suddenly Absolutely. the IRRs are just incredible. But as is, stand alone, look at it for what it is today, and it's. I have my opinion, obviously, but you'll have to formulate your own. Uh, great, great. That, that, that's all I have. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jason, for, for uh, doing this call with me. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to seeing how the company grows over the next year or two. Um, uh, if it is possible, I would love to come up in uh, uh, sometime during the winter to see the, uh, the drill program uh, initiated. And, uh, yeah, that, w- that would be fantastic.
1: We're always happy to host you, Doc. Uh, Yeah, we hope you can make it up.
0: Great, great. And uh, everyone else on the call, thank you so much for uh, participating. And again, um, do your due diligence. Uh, There's many resources. Go to the company website for starters. Then go you can go to the uh, uh, SIDAR and look at the legal filings. Everything is in there. Uh, Check the macro backdrop uh, and, and see how... Any investment will fit into that. And uh, my own advice is, you know, there's always time to do your research. You know, anyone who says it's now or never, that's probably a really bad investment. Uh, The market will always be there to take your money. So take your time to learn first what it it is and then make your choices from a place of strength and understanding. And uh, understand this is investing I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not I'm not. a trader. I'm not talking about trading. That's a whole different area. Uh, this is about long-term investing in something that has uh, the potential to appreciate over time as they meet certain milestones. And in mining, investing is usually boring most of the time. It's news. Then there's a month or two months of nothing. Then there's news. And then you start to correlate how all this data is adding up to a, a certain outcome. So for anyone listening, that's my. All right, everyone. Thank you for participating, and uh, we'll check in uh, in in the new year. see how the assays are and uh, the drill program and if there's any other uh, news on the potential acquisition front or from the government or whatever else comes along. Great. Thank you, Jason. Thanks a lot, Doc. Appreciate it.